I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. with Sean Bonner and we're in the very much the ground zero of the LA hipster scene at Silver Lake Intelligentsia Coffee yes yes actually uh, in the last Grand Theft Auto in San Andreas which is based in Los Angeles there's actually a scene where you have to go kill all the hipsters at Intelligentsia <laughs> um, so the, the whole game is modeled after the city and, and the Intelligentsia setting is, is the hipster murder land well, I, feel, I feel very safe to be here yeah. <laughs> uh, so Sean you're someone who by very nature defies description so I, I, I took a look at your LinkedIn profile and I struggled completely with it. Except I think you have a very interesting Purposely, life. purposely. <laughs> um, tell me, what are some of the things that you're, you've been working on at the moment? Uh, well, still the thing that I work on most right now is SafeCast, which is probably the easiest thing to, to define and, and has been for quite a long time. But uh, So that's been, been the thing that takes up the most of my time for about the last four years since the Fukushima meltdown and, and running SafeCast and all that, all that sort of entails. Uh, but in addition to that, I'm, I'm on the board of a few different companies. I work with some hacker spaces. I make weird music. I take pictures of stuff. Um, <laughs> I travel all over the place. You're a fellow Leica yes. shooter. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> if, nothing, if nothing else, that makes you very interesting. Unfortunately, I'm a fellow Leica <laughs> shooter. An expensive hobby. Yes. I blame Joey. <laughs> it's all his fault. <laughs> uh, let's talk about um, SafeCast. Sure. Uh, Tell me the story about how it came about and, uh, and, and really what's happened to the project since. Yeah, so um, the way that that started is the same as, uh, to mention Joey, uh, there was this huge earthquake in Japan, you know, and, and I spend a lot of time in Japan and have friends there, um, and, and Joey was living there at that point, and so, uh, you know, we have earthquakes in Los Angeles, so anytime there's, there's an earthquake and you have friends in earthquake places, you know, you sort of reach out and make sure everything was okay, and this was a really big earthquake, and so... Uh, immediately I just pinged him to make sure everything was good and he didn't know he wasn't in town he was like I'm trying to find out what's going on now too um, and so we just immediately were reaching out to our network trying to find out what's going on and, and over you know the next few hours next few days uh, it became clear that that there was something happening at the nuclear plant and that nobody really had any information um, and so in, an, in a sort of series of steps uh, where we thought, oh, that's a problem that we can fix, you know, we got deeper and deeper involved with it. At first we thought we would just go find this information that nobody could find. Hmm. Then we realized that nobody could find it because it didn't exist, but we could maybe help generate it. But then we realized that helping generate it was a much bigger problem because there was no equipment available. The, the entire world supply of Geiger counters sold out in about 24 hours. Um, and so, you know, all of this, like each step sort of got us deeper and deeper into it. So the J Japanese government didn't have this information? No. Nope. I mean, there was no sensor network in place at all. Right. Yeah. And so prior to, um, to that, that earthquake and that sort of situation, the best radiation data you could get uh, anywhere in the world was essentially a huge average of a city and sort of the the reference that I make a lot because radiation is hard to say you can't look out your window and tell what a radiation level is um, but the, the reference that I use uh, is basically if if you wanted to know what the weather was like in Los Angeles right now you know outside here and the best thing you could get was an average of the entire state if that was the the, the most concrete data you could get which wouldn't be wrong 
but it wouldn't be helpful either, right? No. It wouldn't tell you whether you needed a, a raincoat or a jacket or an umbrella. Or whether you should sit on this park bench or not. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, so we, that's why we designed the SafeCast uh, platform, both the hardware and software platform. It takes radiation data all the way down to an individual GPS point. So you can see, you know, the change literally walking across the street or just a few feet difference. I'm looking at this device now, and, and, and what's extraordinary about it, 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 it's so beautifully built. It looks like a piece of steampunk engineering. Right. And, uh, well, I the three founders are like a shooter. Right? Well, yeah, that, that instantly should yeah. uh, be a warning sign. <laughs> um, but I noticed it said that it's uh, here in Silver Lake, we're at a very moderate 48. Sure. So what does it actually mean? So 48, and that's just the raw data. So that's like a counts per minute. Um, and that's, uh, you know, basically that's how many particles are flying through the sensor at any given point. And, and these, these devices, our big IGs, um, use a two inch pancake sensor, which is sort of like the industry standard, very reliable sensor. It takes a reading very fast. A reading that is taken with it is, is incredibly reliable. And that was important for us because we didn't want to take readings that then somebody would have to come back later to verify. We wanted to be able to say, it was taken with this device, with this sensor, you can trust that reading. Right. Um, so there's other sensors that we could have used that are much smaller, much cheaper, um, but they would have needed further verification. So, But this is all open source hardware, right? I mean, how did you guys pull this together so this quickly? Is, this is as open source as possible, right? I mean, right. like that, that sensor tube is not an open source tube, but it's you know readily available. There's a number of manufacturers that make them that are the, the same or whatever, um, but you're not going to create a Geiger tube in your garage anyway. Like that's a that's a specialty part that you have to get. Right. Um, but everything else that you know, the display, uh, everything on it, Arduino, you know, it's all open as far as that goes. And of course, our designs are all open and everything. So, so how, how did you pull the project together so quickly? Um, really, we just, I mean, it's it's a example of sort of flexing a network, right? I mean, between me and Joey and like the handful of people that we pulled, pulled in in the first few minutes, you know, in the first few hours. I mean, this this thing initially was built in a Skype chat room, you know, and then that, that morphed into other things, but it was really us just having a conversation and depending on where the conversation led, we were like, oh, I know somebody who's good at that. Let me pull them in, right? And so then, oh, I know somebody who, who does Geiger counter stuff. Let me pull them in. I know someone who, you know, at the Tokyo hackerspace, let me pull them in. And so we're just reaching out to whoever came up at any point as we were talking and, and had a discussion. Right. Yeah. And so that's really like where it all came from was just like, we have all these sort of, you know, the loose ties thing, right? All these people that we know, but we're not necessarily in touch with on a daily basis. But this situation came up and they're the one to grab it. I can instantly like ping them. And now that we're in a conversation five seconds later, you know. And how many data points have you collected now? We are just over 33 million data points. Wow. Yeah. And so that's more data than every other project that's collected radiation data combined in history. <laughs> and, and what are people now doing with that data? They, well. They're doing a lot. I mean, because we make the data completely available, we put it out under a CC0 license. So it's basically public domain. Um, so nobody has to ask us if they want to use it. They don't have to come through us. We're not a barrier in any way. We try to remove as much friction as possible. Um, so the side effect of that is that we don't know what everybody's doing with it because people are accessing it that we don't necessarily have any idea. Um, that said, there's people doing lots of visualizations about it. We know there's a lot of researchers who have never had 
access to this kind of data that are, you know, their minds are blown because they can now run all these tests, they can now run all these scenarios that they weren't able to do before. There's people with other huge data sets um, that they're able to contrast against ours. Some of that's not open because their, their other data set is closed or something, but they're doing reports or whatever. So one example is uh, there's a group out of Harvard that has a lot of um, data about stress levels um, that they put together from mining social media during the Fukushima meltdown, right? So they were looking through Facebook and looking through Twitter to see like what people were talking about and where and when, right? And, and then gauging how stressed out those people were. And so they're able to take that data, contrast it with our data of where there's actual contamination and where there isn't actual contamination, and then also cross-reference that against what articles were running in the news where and determine like how stressed people were and how realistic any of that stress was. Were people stressed, you know, justifiably or were they, you know, stressed just because they didn't have access to the right information? And also, once data was released, how that changed, you know? There's an element to this which is a story about citizen science, mm -hmm. you know, which is about non-formal scientists doing something amazing collectively. Right. But there's another very interesting part of this story, I think, that has to do with just the sheer power of sensors mm -hmm. and information that's collected in a very you know, decentralized way. Sure. Um, I mean, for people to collect this, they had to carry around a fairly large specialist device. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the most recent version. This is much more svelte and, and you know. Right. Uh, the original version was a briefcase, you know, with a laptop and, and like we had right. much, much more, uh, much more junk to carry around with it. Every incarnation, we've tried to make it easier. Um, and the new ones that we're working on are even smaller. Yeah, even smaller. But but, but I guess when when you, when you look at your experiences, you know, with the, this kind of data collection, mm -hmm. I mean, do you look at sort of the next generation of smartphones and wearables? Mm. And I think there must be some amazing opportunities here for yeah. I mean, in fact, collection. in fact, that's something that we're that we're working on with this is offloading a bunch of these guts to a smartphone, right? Wow. I mean, initially when we designed this, we wanted we wanted it to be standalone. We didn't want it to have to rely on something because if we design something that required an iPhone or something, we instantly rule out a huge chunk of people that could use it, right? Or maybe there's, especially in Fukushima where we're talking about an older population or something, we didn't want anything to be dependent outside of it, right? But the truth is going forward, there's lots of people that have all of these things. And if we can make a device that's smaller, easier to use, that some people would want because it offloads a ton of the smarts to a smartphone or something, um, you know, you're basically talking about a connected sensor as opposed to an, a different device, right? right? Um, so yeah, I think that there's a huge potential going forward with that. And, and, you know, radiation is what we are most known for because that's the thing we've been doing longest, but we're working on air quality now as well. And so we have prototypes of air quality sensors and that's a whole other thing, right? It's using a core piece of this design, but with different sensors, right? And once once we take another few of those steps where you're not having the core piece because that is offloaded on something, it's really about just which sensor are you carrying around today that's sending all the data. This would be very else. valuable to like Beijing. Exactly, yeah, right. or anywhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, I mean, Los Angeles, we, we worry about air quality <laughs> here a lot, you know. Well, what have you learned um, from this process of really getting citizens and ordinary people to collect the data? Um, what has that experience taught you, I think, for these future projects? Uh, people are much more interested than, than they get credit for, you know, and people are much more able than they get credit for. I mean, properly motivated is is the bigger issue, right? I mean, if you're going to try to find people and convince them that what you're doing is important, sure, that's problematic. Um, but if they are motivated on their own, there's no reason that they can't do the same thing, 
you know that other people are doing right so i mean that's something that we've we've seen especially like i said like the older population in fukushima or something like that um would just be discounted you know like oh like there's a bunch of like retirees what are they gonna do you know but it's like they're gonna do a lot you know they're gonna really do a lot like give them the right tools and explain to them like what they need to take care of and they will take care of it um and so i think that that's been a fairly inspiring piece for me anyway is that you can you can give the right tools to people and they will deliver you know in many ways this project and some of these other things you've worked on remind me of the earlier days of the internet, mm-hmm. you know, where, where people imagined it to be more decentralized, uh, more subversive. Yeah, well, that's uh, where I grew up. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. Uh, but but do you think, in, in some ways, this is bucking the trend? Because um, it seems that the the internet today is, is much more well lit. Yeah, more like a shopping mall, more franchise. Uh, absolutely. I mean, with Safecast and with you know like other similar projects, you know, at least the ones that I'm that I'm involved with on whatever level. Um, I mean, these are not created to attract VCs, right? These are not created to, you know, be like the flashy thing or whatever. Um, In fact, they're not necessarily even created to be legal, right? I mean, when we built this, like every step of the way, we were expecting to be shut down. So we designed it so that it couldn't be shut down, right? Like if, if if we were all hit by a bus and killed, the project would live on. If we were all arrested and, you know, we don't even have servers, right? If our whatever was seized, you know, like it would still live on. Like there's no way to stop it. And that that's by design, right? And so that's because we didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't know like for sure, is this a legal thing? Is this, we didn't ask permission, right? And I think that that's where all the early internet stuff comes, right? Nobody is wondering like, is this something I'm allowed to do? They just did it. And that's, that's the approach. Like we'd rather have the results and then worry about whether it was okay to get those results then ask up front if it's okay to get results and then be told no and then not have anything to show for it. But in a way, this is still philosophically different from an Uber. Sure. <laughs> who, who goes, uh, you know, we'll do what we like and we've raised enough money you can sue right. us and we don't care. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, because again, we don't own, you know, like that's not, like I'm not making this because I think Safecast is my golden ticket, right? Like I don't, Yeah. everything that we're doing is available for anybody could go do it, right? Like 100% of what we've done is out in the world somebody could copy it the reason why I bring it up is in some ways this new world of sensors the internet of things um, data and maps yeah it's a bit like the old internet what the web was like in, mm-hmm. in the late 90s yeah I mean the web today people don't think of websites they think of Facebook right um, apps, apps <laughs> you know a handful of, of sites right um, but you know, this new world we're moving into where there's so many new devices collecting information, interacting with each other. It's still a bit of the Wild West. Right. Yeah, I mean, in the mid-90s, and I mean, you know this as well, it was, it was very exciting because that was when you were first realizing, like, wow, I can do something on this site and make it tie into something happening on another site. Like, you couldn't do that before, before then, right? Yeah. I mean, like, web links and, or like, you know, like... You know, that I could link to this site was exciting, right? And so, yeah. like, being able to pull something from this site and put it on that site, that changed everything, right? And that you don't even think about that anymore. Like, everything's everything's connected as far as that goes. And so, I think with hardware starting to talk to itself and talk to other things and talk to the web, you know, yeah. you're starting to see a bit of that again. Like, oh wow, like this thing I'm holding in my hand can can you know cause some change on the internet, you know? Yeah, it's like spooky <laughs> at a yeah. distance, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one of the other areas you, you write a lot about is uh, sort of internet culture and you know how, how our behaviours are changing. Now. Yeah. Uh, you, you, I think, early predicted on the, the kind of rise of neo minimalism and um, you know uh, techno nomads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, that comes from, you know, I mean, I travel a lot, you know, and so a lot of a lot of that comes from uh, trying to figure out what do I stick in my suitcase, you know, and like getting someplace and not being without whatever I need to, um, as well as, you know, sort of like looking around my house and, and realizing like, why do I have all this crap around here? Like, what do I, what do I need this for? Um, you know, I mean, I've written about this, but there was, there was a point where I moved at some point. I'd been living someplace for eight years, you know, and I like moved out of that place and had to physically touch everything I owned. And that was a really big sort of revelation for me. Before that, I had, um, you know, for whatever reason, moved quite a bit, you know, like I never really lived any in any city more than three or four years. And while I was there, I moved every other year. So, you know, so I, I wasn't sitting in one place long enough. But then it was in Los Angeles and sitting in some place for eight years, all of a sudden I'm touching things and I'm like, wow, like I didn't even remember I had, like, why do I have this? You know, I, I spent so much time trying to get this thing and now it's just sitting in the closet, you know, like whatever it was. And so I just was thinking about all of that stuff. And then, you know, looking at all that stuff together and realizing, wow, I have five things that all do the same thing. Why do I need five things? I need one thing that does that, you know? And, uh, you know, just sort of thinking about objects, you know, and, and the that's design very, of them. That's a very yeah. Japanese, um, <laughs> you know, perspective. Yeah. It's essentially the whole meme of uh, tidying up now. Right, exactly. Sort of sweeping yeah. the world. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I certainly wasn't the first person to talk about that, right? Like, there's other people that, that talk about this before me, and there's people that sort of cycles around and yeah the cleaning up and tidying up uh you know approach now is just sort of the latest incarnation of it yeah. um but i learned stuff from you know the new people that are talking about it as well <laughs> um but yeah i mean you're surrounded by all of this stuff and so it needs to be useful right i mean that's what it boils down to is like i want the things around me to be of use otherwise why do i have them around me and especially there gets to a point where the things around you can hinder what it is that you're trying to do right if you have seven different things and they're in the way of the you know the thing that you're trying to do and you can't decide which one of these things do i use and i can't even find the thing i need because it's in the bottom of the drawer covered by like the seven other you know but, but do you think there's a natural link between technology and minimalism i mean in the sense that you carry your iPhone and that does so many things and replaces the need for other devices or... I don't know. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that there's anybody carrying an iPhone that was carrying 75 devices before that, that they've, you know, like, yeah, it's great that the iPhone does all of those things, but, you know, how, how, many, how many people are carrying less because of an iPhone versus all that other stuff? Like, my iPhone does a million things but I didn't carry all of those individual devices before. It's more of an addition, right? right. Um, and I mean, I even wrestle with, with that minimalism, ah, minimalism piece with, with apps and stuff, right? I mean, I have nine music player apps on my phone right now. Like, do I need, I don't need nine. I don't even need, you know, I need one, but there's not one that does what I want, right? And so that's problematic because I want, I want something that does a specific thing and I can't find a thing. That, so I end up with four things to try to justify it, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where that's where a lot of this sort of struggle comes from. Um, but even that that translates out too. Like it's apps, but it's also offline, right? It's like I just can't find the thing that works the way I want it to, which is why I have four different things, you know, because none of them do exactly what I want. So another area you've been really involved with, Sean, is um, hacker spaces and, and and the whole maker movement in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, many people have said that LA is becoming this new kind of mecca uh, for uh, you know startups approaching things in a slightly different way than Silicon Valley and certainly New York. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what's sort of happening in, in this area? Um, well, I mean, I, 
LA has always had a strong sort of hardware and tech piece that, you know, isn't as sort of flashy or gets as much, I mean, JPL and, you know, all of these sort of rocket scientist people have been around LA for a very, very long time. So um, I think that that has infected a bit of the culture uh, in one way or another. Right. Um, but I think that because it's so wide and, and so spread out, people have more time to sort of dig in and do their thing. You know, I mean, both with um, with San Francisco and New York, like everybody's on top of each other, you know, and so there's a lot of everybody doing the same thing because, you know, the six people in your office are all working on the same thing and you can't walk down the street without running and nine people are all doing the same thing. And, you know, that sort of stuff spreads very, very quick. Um, whereas in L.A., you know, you might have to drive an hour and a half and you're still in the city, <laughs> right? Um, you know, to, to get to anything, right? And so right. there's these little pockets and little groups um, and, and there's, it's actually quite easy in LA for there to be three or four different groups or companies or whatever all working on the same thing and not even know about each other, you know, because, because it's so... Because this was a city designed for cars, yeah. not people. <laughs> exactly, right? It's all over the place. So is that, is that what these, these hackerspaces do to sort of provide a kind of a geography of density? Yeah, I mean, um, when I started uh, Crashbase um, with, with uh, some friends and, you know, we really wanted a place and we had our first meeting at a coffee shop in Venice um, and I sort of just like threw it out into the world and I was like, I want to start a hackerspace. If you're interested in starting this thing with me, you know, come to this coffee shop and let's, let's talk about it. And a handful of people showed up and, you know, in that conversation, you know, we sort of pulled out a map of the city, set it down and said, where did everybody drive from? And like drew dots on the map and connected the dots and said, okay, Culver City is in the middle. Let's put the, let's put it there, you know? Um, and so that was geographically how we figured out where it was going to be, right. uh, you know, and now there's many others, you know, because the need has, has arisen quite a bit for there to be more of these things and, and whatever. So there's, there's spaces all over the city, um, that are doing similar or slightly tweaked versions of it. Um, and yeah, it's all, it's all where you're at. Who are these people really that, that, that hang out here? These are not your typical startup people. No, I don't so. think I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think hackerspace people are, are typical startup people. I mean, certainly startup. Are they more artists? Would you say? There's, I mean, I think that there's a strong creative bent to it. Um, they're they're definitely tinkerers. They're people who you know want to. They don't necessarily have a, an outcome in mind. I think they're right. the people that want to sort of look at a whole bunch of you know Lego pieces and see what they can build with them. Right? Not necessarily. I'm trying to build a car. What's the best way to do that? Right? Um, so, with these people who would have done arts and crafts. I think there are people who are doing arts and crafts, right? I mean, I think that that's a huge, a huge piece that, that goes into it. I mean, at Crashbase, you know, there's people doing all sorts of like wearable and, and artistic influenced things, right? I mean, at the other, at the other things, there's there's that element of it, right? I mean, it, it, at some point, it, it gets hard to draw a line between art with popsicle sticks and yarn and glue yeah and then at the last second you're also including an led and a battery you know <laughs> like yeah like at what point it's become electronics project and a craft for, you know like but again you yeah. look at something like oculus rift and, right. and that was built in very much the same way i mean these guys were hardware hackers i mean makerbot you know came from new york city resistor right right so i mean like there's lots of there's lots of big companies and commercial products that came from a bunch of people sitting around a table with parts, 
you know, going, what, what, what could come out of this, you know? You, you know, a lot of companies try to incubate innovation. Right. Uh, and they, they always go about it in the kind of the weirdest way possible. <laughs> Usually just by buying all the post-it notes and hoping that kind of uh, is a transfusion of creativity yeah. <laughs> into the employees. But, but, but do, do you think there's an element um, to which these things can be incorporated in companies. You can create a kind of a hacker space or a, the ability for people to tinker within yeah, a business. Yes, I do. I mean, I think that, that there's the intention is, is a big piece of it, right? And the motivation is a big piece of it. You can't take... Um, you can't just stick all the parts in a room and say, here, now, like, you know, have something come from it, right? I mean, there has to be interest and there has to be motivation and there has to be... Um, you know, sort of like the DNA to do something fun has to be in there. It's not. It's not just a checklist of things to include in the boardroom, and then magically that stuff's going to happen, right? I mean, there's definitely people that try that, and that's not where where it comes from, right? It's a culture and a community piece that drives it as much as anything else. I was telling the story this morning on on another call that I was on, um, where uh, another makerspace is sort of thinking out a couple of possible directions. Uh, for their future, um, and they were referencing um, sort of member-driven uh, groups and membership-driven as sort of like revenue, right? Mm. Um, and they were talking about uh, viability of that and, and referencing te Tech Shop, which is you know sort of like a huge, huge company, and, and Tech Shop gets referenced on these things a lot. And I was telling the story about how with um, with Crashbase when we started Crashbase and we were looking at membership and everything else. We made a decision very early on that the tools and sort of the stuff we had in the space was not going to be our marketing piece and was not going to be sort of our draw at all. And anybody who was interested in, in the hardware wasn't the kind of people that we wanted to be right. interested in, right? Because like with Tech Shop and with any of these other groups, it's sort of like we have a... 20 a, CNC cutting machine. Yeah, we have all this stuff and you can come <laughs> rent time on it, right? right? Like you can come, like these, this is, which, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's certainly a need, like not everybody's going to go buy a laser cutter, right? And yeah. so if somebody needs two hours on a laser cutter and that's the only thing they're interested in, like there's a void to fill for that, but that's not what we wanted to do, right? We, we didn't want people who wanted to come rent something for two hours and then leave. We wanted people who are going to come help build a community, you know, the community is first, hardware is second, right? And so that's how we developed the group and the, and the community. And now we have amazing stuff there, but it's because the community brought it in, not because it brought in the community, right? right. Um, so it's just like, which which sort of cart pulls that horse? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are you most excited about, I guess, when you, when you think about you, you, the internet and, and, and the kind of this new world we're moving into? Uh, you've 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 been tracking it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, are you more optimistic now, or are you? I'm I'm pretty pessimistic right now, unfortunately. I I wish I could be optimistic, but I mean, I just I see so much. Um, there's so much happening behind the scenes. There's so much like regulation. There's so much uh, holes in things. There's 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 no trust anymore. There's no reliability anymore. I mean, it goes into like what we we're talking about with apps and stuff, right? And and you know, sort of a little before we were recording. Uh, I want to be able to trust that what I'm working on is going to be there tomorrow, you know. And I want to I want to I want a foundation that I can build something exciting on. And that's that's much harder today than it was ten years ago, you know. Yeah. It certainly feels, you know, when the services you put time and effort into. Uh swept away like a, a week later that you're some right. part of an experiment right and it's yeah <laughs> that's exactly right you feel like you're part of an experiment and especially when 
you'd rather pay money than, than actually just be giving your data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and and to tie that in even into the hackerspace thing a little bit, like I want the I don't I don't necessarily want the services as much as I want the community, right? Like like in the early days of the internet, uh, you know, IRC, even like early Twitter and and things like that, like the community was the draw. Right? Well, self-selecting. I yeah. mean, if you were the few people who knew what Twitter was in the first couple of months, right? Uh, it created an interesting community. Yeah, and and yeah, for sure. And and even before that, I used to book tours for bands uh, in the '90s using IRC, right? right? And so, like, I knew right away that if a promoter was on IRC hanging out in these groups. I could trust them. Right? Your people. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I knew what I was getting into with yeah. with any of that, um, and that just doesn't exist that way anymore. Um, and it seems like every day, every whatever, there's a new company that's like, "We're going to be your new community," you know, and like, "Here, we're going to give you all this stuff," you know. And it's yeah. like, I don't, I don't trust your community. I want my community. And then I also want to be able to know that my community is going to be here tomorrow, right? I don't want to. I don't want to get an email from you that the company sold and you know now it's gone, right? Like we're going to change something. Like even Twitter, right? Like Twitter completely changed how I communicate with people. Like I, I love Twitter. They changed my life because of that. But Twitter today is not what it was, right? And there's nothing that is what it was. Like I can't. Like I want. I, I say this all the time. I want Twitter like 2008 so bad you know like I like I just that tool like I want that more than anything there's a Kickstarter project you, you, you can create vintage Twitter yeah I would <laughs> I would I would love it you know like but it just it doesn't exist and yeah. like you know the company the company has made changes to the platform that are not what I want right and I can't get what I want anymore and it's not even that there's an alternative right like I can't just say like oh I just want to use the old version right yeah. Like, it's not even, like, an old app, right, or an old software. Like, I'm just going to stick with Photoshop 8, right, because it's, like, it does my... I can't. You, you can't roll back. Right, I can't roll back. I can't do that. I'm saying some groups of, you know, people uh, in the industry now have kind of retreated to private email lists or Slack groups, you know, to have these insider conversations. Sure, both of those things. Is that, is that really happening? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, a, I'm on a number of, like, secret email lists and secret Slack groups. Right. I mean... As How many people are inside these secret groups? This sounds like Fight Club for, <laughs> for, 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 for techies. I mean, I'll, it, it runs the gamut, right? I mean, I think like probably the smallest mailing list that's like a secret private kind of mailing list is maybe 15 or 20 people. Um, and then there's some that are like in the 80s and 90 people. Nothing huge, right? I mean, it's not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and same thing with like the smaller Slack groups. There's some that are 10 people. There's some that are like 50 people or something. Um, but there, it's an incredibly curated group of people, right? Right. It's like a stealth Twitter yeah. microcosm. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, it's, and I think one of the appeals to that is um, that it's not trying to be huge, right? Like nobody is, like especially on like those mailing lists or that, they're not setting it up to say, let's see how many people we can get in here, you know? Like they're like we only want this small group, right? <laughs> so I mean, maybe that's elitist, but like that's that's the community, right? They're trying to create this community, and it's not it's not the entire world. It's this group of people, right? And you want to be able to have these conversations. And you want to be able to like trust that any reply you get back is a trustworthy reply, right? I mean, early days of Twitter, the only people who were on it, I could ask a question, and I knew any response I got, I could put a lot of stake in because there was only a handful of people there, and I knew who they were. Right now, like if I ask a question. I got to check, you know, I'm going to get tons of replies. I don't know who the replies are coming from. Like, you know, I don't know what anything is about it. So it's a different, it's a different thing, right? 
The party's no fun when everyone's invited. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.